Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we come to you today in this first Sunday of Advent in a year that feels like it has been an entire year of Advent of waiting, of uncertainty, of not knowing, but having hope in the midst of it all. And so we thank you that you give us a source of hope in Christ, and we thank you that we're not in this alone, but you've given us a reminder of that hope in our church family that's around us. And, and so we pray today that you would speak to us through your word, that you would bring comfort for us, and that you would set our eyes on hope. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are continuing in. We're actually beginning to wind down our series in the book of Romans. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it with us to Romans chapter 16. Um, counting today, we only have three more sermons in this letter. And so just two more Sundays that will be in Romans as we close out 2020. Um, I, I never thought that you know, I, it, it, Romans felt like a book that I like built toward and put off because I wanted to make sure that our, I was ready as a preacher and our church was ready for it. And as I began it in January, I never thought that I would preach this central book in the New Testament, mostly to a, a, an empty room through most of the year and then only recently having some of you back in, but such a, a, a difficult time. But I also think it's been timely for our church throughout, and I think that's true today as well. And so we're, we begin a section now, or we're in a section in Romans where, where Paul is, we really see some personal aspects of his life and ministry. These aren't great lofty doctrinal proclamations like we've seen throughout. Um, we get to a section of greeting today and a list of people that Paul wants to send greetings to. Um, and so this gets to some themes for us that are important, though. It shows us something of what the church is and what Paul believed the church is as the, the preeminent church planter, the guy that started churches across the Roman Empire. Is, and so it shows us something of what he believes ministry and the church and church life are about. And so that's important for us because every one of us has different expectations that we bring in of what we're looking for in a church. And so for some of you, you've been around Redemption Hill for a while. For some of you, you're newer. And those of you who have joined us over the last, I don't know, seven, eight months, what a weird time to try to find a church. And people that have moved to D.C. and, and tied into Redemption Hill Church, what a weird time to look for a church when, you, when everything is so distanced and you can't experience the fullness of a church family and a church body, uh, and so you're just getting tastes and glimmers. It's, it's a strange time. And our church in particular happens to be a very diverse church in, in our backgrounds. And so this is one of the things that's always fascinating to me when we're in foundations classes is we'll ask, like, hey, what, what is your church background? as you come in, and it's all over the place for us consistently, where some of you have no church background at all, and you're new to Christ, and you didn't grow up in churches, and so everything is new, and Redemption Hill is one of your first church experiences. For some of you, we have, we have Baptists, and we have Anglicans, and Methodists, and Presbyterians, and Episcopalians, and Lutherans, and Roman Catholics, and non-denominational background. Like We're all here together, and so all of that means that you might come in with different expectations of what church is. And there's different things that we hold that might be most important. 
For some people, as they look for a church, they're looking for an event. You want to make sure that you're entertained well, that the program is good. You want to feel a certain way, and so it's about going to an event each week. For some, you might think of church more as an academy. Like, I want to go because I want to learn things, and, and information transfer is the primary thing that you're looking for. For some of you, it's church as activism, a group leading the way into social issues and how is the church engaged in social issues. Or maybe it's church as social club, a chance to be included and feel community is the primary. Or for others, it's just church as obligation because it's something you've always done and feel like you should. But in every one of those scenarios I just mentioned, if church is just an event, just an academy, just an activist group, just a social club, just an obligation, then that means that your individual role is pretty passive. The picture in the New Testament is different. Everyone has a part to play. And so in this first Sunday of Advent, a Sunday of hope, but not hope realized, hope that is longed for in the darkness, this passage brings us some comfort in a year that we need hope. Because what we see in today's text, the big idea today is that the church is a family on mission together. And so we're going to read in Romans chapter 16, the first 16 verses, so about half the chapter today. Um, let me just say now that for those of you who are community group leaders, this would be a great week to pass off reading the text on somebody else in your community group. And I think you'll see why in a second. So Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but the, all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epanetus, who is the first to convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. My beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those of the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trephena and Trephosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so in CG this week, if you get tasked with reading this, just read it fast and with confidence. And everyone will think that you figured out how to pronounce the names correctly. <laughs> I mean, we have personal greetings here, so you can feel the affection and warmth from Paul toward these people, and, and so we need to be careful in reading this. There's things that we can distill out of this for us, but like most in the New Testament, we have to look at what is prescriptive and descriptive and, and make sure not to hold those in distinction. So look at what is being described in this context and understand what's being described in the context of what was happening in Rome at the time and in the church at Rome, but also then see what we can distill out that isn't always a one-to-one, -one, but what, can we, what does this mean for us? But if nothing else, the, the big emphasis that, that I see as we look at this text is we see Paul's approach to his own ministry. 
and the way that he thinks about church and the value he places on fellow workers and the importance of the roles that other people have to play and and, an open affection for the people that God is using. And so we have imagery in Romans that we've already seen. Then in chapter 12, remember, it started this last section of Romans saying, don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that it shows us through the end of Romans how all of our relationships are transformed. And we've seen this imagery in Romans 12 that the church is the body of Christ and each one of us are individual members of the body. And just like our body has different parts who have different functions, so we all have different parts and different functions and different roles to play as part of building up the body of Christ. And so today we see a similar theme. But it's not so much straight instruction as it is an example that we see that is shown for us. And so the big idea is that we are a family on mission together. And I think four observations today. We'll see how the day goes. First, we are not in this alone. I think that's one of the most striking things that when, I, when we read this in Paul's ministry is the number of people that this man had around him. Remember, this guy wasn't tethered to a single place. He spent a year and a half in Corinth planting a church. He spent three years in Ephesus planting the church in Ephesus and doing ministry in Ephesus, but, but he was on the move constantly. And still, along the way, we see that he didn't get isolationist in his ministry because of that, but instead that expanded the number of people that he had around him. This is, this is something that is, is hard for us to conceptualize too often because we have a tendency, and we've talked, we talk about this often at Redemption Hill, but we, we have a tendency in Western culture, in American culture, to be highly individualistic. And, and it's hard to tell somebody that's grown up in our cultural setting to do anything. It's, that's why it's, it's controversial right now to ask people to wear masks in some places in this country because you can't tell me what to do. You hear Christians trying to make weird theological arguments about like, well, I'm going with an unveiled face. Paul says we have unveiled faces in 2 Corinthians. You want to say, that is, that is not at all. You are not Moses encountering the glory of God <laughs> and, and shining with radiance from the encounter Paul's argument there is that we now come to God without having to be covered by anything. That is not the same as wearing a mask in a pandemic. But it bleeds into everything. It bleeds into our spiritual life and our approach to spirituality. We have an individualistic approach to spirituality that has just been, that is infused into us. So when we talk about our spiritual life, it's my spiritual life. It's my quiet times in, in Bible study and prayer. It's my prayer time. It's my spiritual dryness that I'm wrestling through. Everything becomes personalized. And so we read the Bible that way. You ever, have, you ever done, have you ever played Bible roulette? <laughs> Where you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Maybe God will give me an answer. And you, you go like this. And you think that it's only this passage, we have no context at all, and you just go, what is my answer? And you go, you must turn this day from following the, if, wait, no, that's weird. If we not had enough sin, if we have not cleansed ourselves from this plague, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. If you rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Maybe that's the word you need today, and you need to hear stop rebelling against God and turn in repentance. But 
that's not getting into the context in Joshua chapter 22 of what's happening with the eastern tribes' altars and the throwing down of false gods. Like it's, we just do this, but then we take this as an individualistic thing. We do this with the New Testament when we get into the letters and we read them, and because the English language that we use doesn't have a plural for the second person, we read every you as being to me. When it's almost always plural, It's saying, you all in this church in Rome, you all in this church in Corinth, it's always communal and collective. What we see in the New Testament is almost entirely that way. There is no concept in the New Testament of individual Christians untethered from church family. But I know institutions are out of vogue, and so we have that. There are books being written of, you know, how to be a Christian and not have to go to church on Sundays. Because anti-institutionalism becomes popular until, it's, that, until movements of anti-institutionalism themselves become institutions. Dane Ortland said, The church is the precious bride of Christ whom he nourishes and sustains for whom he shed his blood. The church is Christ's body in the world through whom he is advancing his mission despite satanic opposition. The church is the pillar and buttress of truth in the arena in which God displays his wisdom to the angels. Indeed, so close is Christ's identification with his church that to persecute her is to persecute him. So anyone, therefore, who loves Christ must also love his church. And make no mistake, if we abandon the church, we are also abandoning Jesus. So, But even better than that, This means we're not in this alone. That your pursuit and relationship with God isn't just how you feel today. Thank God for that, because there's a lot of days that I wake up and I don't feel great. And that I'm not sure that I feel God's presence. And I'm not sure that I feel the encouragement that I want to or feel the warmth of God's love. But he has given us tangible realities within his church to communicate those things for us. This is what we, I mean, last week I quoted Bonhoeffer in saying, there's times when we need the word of God in the mouths of a brother or sister because the Christ in our hearts is too weak. Our own unbelief gets in the way of our ability to see God's faithfulness and care. But the word, but the Christ in the heart of our brother or sister in a moment is able to show us the strength of God and to sustain us. This is, in a year like 2020, where we, where we all feel varying levels of isolation. And I know some of us, some of you, are more locked down than others, and, and there's varying levels of conscience and way people are expressing freedoms right now. And there's, I mean, this is divisive within churches and within our country of how to approach things within the pandemic and what's appropriate and what's not and what levels of contact and what not. And all, but, but no matter where you're at on a spectrum, all of us are feeling the weight of isolation to some degree. So what a beautiful reminder for us to have that we're not alone, that there are people around us. This is the importance of continuing to gather together. This is why Hebrews warns that and says, don't give up gathering together as some have been prone to do, but, but continue so that we can encourage each other and spur each other on to love and good deeds. It's, it's saying don't give up being together as a church family because you need each other. So praise God that we are a family on mission together and that we're not in this alone. The second observation that I see in this is that God calls all kinds of people together. 
This list is incredible when you really start to dig into it. It is incredibly diverse ethnically. You have huge diversity here, and there's clues. Phoebe is a Greek name. Centria is just outside Corinth. Other people, Paul calls his kinsmen. You know, maybe that means they're actually blood-related as cousins, but likely it means he's used that language in Romans to indicate those who are Jews in Rome, Jewish Christians as opposed to Gentiles. And so we have Jews and Gentiles all in this list, and there's, there's huge diversity in where people are coming from and where they live, and there's clues to that in their names. It's not just ethnically diverse, though. The people that Paul is greeting are economically diverse, too. Because in the church, one of the things that was revolutionary about the church in the first century that is still revolutionary now is that economics and class status have no role in qualifying somebody for membership in a church or for leadership in a church, and they have no place in causing division within the church. We come and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so there are some common names for slaves that are found in this list. That in the, if you look into the history of culture of Rome, there were names that are indicators of class. And so Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus, Julia, all of these are names that were common for underclass or even enslaved people in Rome. And Paul greets people by name. Others are clearly wealthier. Phoebe, we're told, has been a patron of many. Well, do you know what that means? That means Phoebe's bankrolling ministry. That means that she is a woman of means in a port city who is able to support other ministry effort, and not just one or two, has been generous with many. It's an incredible thing that we see in Luke's gospel especially. Um, in Luke chapter 8, it's talked about too that Jesus was supported by women of means in his ministry, that there, it was primarily women who got behind Jesus' ministry and the disciples financially and provided the support for them to be able to do what they did in his teaching ministry. Aristobulus is listed here, and that's, we're not sure. There's some that, it says in verse 10, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Well, Aristobulus was, a, um, was a, the grandson, almost certainly, of Herod the Great and a friend of Emperor Claudius. So this was somebody that was in a position of power and up next to people of power. Now, one, one of the things that's fascinating here is some commentators would say Aristobulus is included here and he must be a Christian and how incredible that God saved somebody, not, that, he, that there was work across these, these strata. Others say, well, notice that it only says greet his family. <laughs> it doesn't say greet Aristobulus and his household. It says greet the family of Aristobulus. But we don't know. But he, it's, this is just saying, at least, that within his household, there were Christians. Narcissus, what a, what a brutal name to get, Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like how, do you, how do you deal with that when people are like, I feel like you're just being a little selfish. And you're like, ah. <laughs> but he was almost certainly a very wealthy man. There's an, a, a close colleague of Emperor Claudius that we see in history who bore that name, who had influence with the emperor. And so you see a diversity economically within the church here. It's also generationally diverse. Verse 13 might be one of my, it's one of my favorite little nuggets of information in this. Because look at verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Have you ever thought about the Apostle Paul needing a mom? Like, I think generally when we think about Paul, we think, 
theologian caught up in his head, somebody that's not scared of anything, that you know, gets beaten up and left for dead and keeps going, like he's resilient, he's, uh, he's bold and opinionated and, and theologically sound, and then the idea of him saying, no, I needed to be cared for, by, and Rufus's mom has been like a mom to me. Now, when we dig into this, there's, there's a little bit of connecting of dots here. So understand, some of this is, is speculative, but there's reason for it in, in, in church tradition and in Scripture. Rufus is likely the son of Simon of Cyrene. You remember who Simon of Cyrene is? It's the man who carried Jesus' cross when he was too weak to carry it. Simon was from Cyrene, which was in, in northern Africa. And the reason we know his name is because it says he's listed in the Gospels. And so in Mark chapter 15, it says, Then they compelled a passerby. It's not like Simon was following Jesus. He was just happened to be there. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and who? Church, you can talk. It's okay. I know it's been a while since we've been together. Rufus. That's the same guy that we have listed in, in Romans 16. So he, they came in, or they, they compelled Simon, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now later on, we read about Simon, and, and many, most believe, and church history teaches us, that this Simon of Cyrene from northern Africa is the same Simon we read about later on in Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, or Simon, who is called Niger. That means Simon, the dark-skinned man. Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's the apostle Paul. And so they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for me for the work for which I have called them. And then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So listen, listen to this connection that is likely in our New Testaments. Simon of Cyrene was pulled in to carry the cross of Jesus Christ with his sons, Alexander and Rufus, watching. Why would Mark name them if they weren't people that were known in the early church? Paul was converted by a, when Jesus confronted him, the risen Lord Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus from Jerusalem when he was going to throw Christians into jail because he was the key persecutor and destroyer of the early church. Jesus called him to himself, and then Paul spent a few years working out his theology, figuring things out, seeing how everything fit together, and then was in ministry in Antioch. Antioch was the first significant church we know of that had no apostolic connection. The apostles didn't start this church. And so there's this group that was incredibly diverse of Greek and Jewish names that are listed there. Simon Niger, so they have Simon from Northern Africa, who's a key leader in that church, whose sons Alexander and Rufus had seen him carry Jesus' cross. And so Mark mentions these, these people by name. These are real people and real events, and they're well known by people. And so Rufus had watched his dad carry the the cross of our Savior. And so now, we, we, if, if that is the same Simon that landed in Antioch, then how would Paul have been mothered and cared for by Rufus's mom? Well, when he landed in Antioch and became part of that church family, the man had left everything he knew and, and had, been, it had rejected his own people and heritage after being the most zealous one for it. He needed family around him. 
And so it is not hard to imagine that family welcomed him in, as we see as a church, when people need family around them. And so it was Rufus's mom here who was called out as saying she administered the Apostle Paul. He was taken in by this family when he was in ministry in Antioch, which became his sending church. So there's generational diversity and care as family. There's also one of the keys in, in Romans 16. So there's, we see ethnic diversity, we see, we see economic diversity and generational diversity, and we also see gender diversity. There's men and women working together. Phoebe is a deacon. Junia is, is another one that we're going to talk about, that women, women were, were an essential part of, of the work that Paul was doing, the work that Jesus was doing, and an essential part of church life and ministry from the start. There are 26 names listed here in Romans 6, in this passage I read, and nine of them are women. And that women were never given as much dignity and place as they were in the early church. And from the church's earliest days, women were full members of the covenant community. They were servants of the church. They were deaconesses with a role, and that meant they served as ministry leaders. And so of the nine listed here, there's a few that especially stand out. First of all, we hear that Mary, and so we read in, in verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. And later on in verse 12, greet the, those workers in the Lord, Trephana and Trephosa. Um, and so these are hard workers, and greet Persis. And so these are four women who stand out that worked hard in the church. And we don't know what they did. We don't know what ministries they were devoted to, but, but we know that Paul was able to call out their labor and their effort and the benefit that their ministry had been. Phoebe is, is an amazing commendation here. So in, in the first two verses of our passage, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to help her in whatever she may need from you. Why? For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And so what do we learn about Phoebe here in Romans 16? First, we learn she's a deacon. That that's literally here, the word, EDSV uses the word servant here. Um, mine even has a little footnote that says, or deaconess. Um, and, and so the servant here is literally the word diakonos or diakonia, which means servant and, and like a lot of things is somewhat fluid in the New Testament. But the way it's used here is similar to how it's used to, to what we see in 1 Timothy 3, that men and women serve in this role of deacon within the church. And so it is, deacons are especially gifted and commissioned by the church to meet practical needs in the church. And so at Redemption Hill, we have elders who are the doctrinal guardians of the church and the dads of the church, and then we have deacons who meet practical needs within the church. This includes our Titus II team, a group of women that serve alongside our elders to particularly meet the needs of the women of the church, and then it includes different team leads. And so we have a deacon that is meeting needs within the church of mercy ministry, a deacon of, our, of security team to make sure that our Sunday gatherings are secure, of, of setup and teardown to make sure that we are ready to be hospitable in our Sunday gatherings, of of tech ministry because and how there may never have been a point where deacon of tech has been more important than over the last eight months, right? And the time that Al Richburg has put in almost every week. Like, 
We have a deacon of our greeting team, again, to make sure people are welcomed. We have a deacon of finance, our treasurer, Rich Kang, who makes sure that everything is being handled properly, and we're following financial systems and checks and, that are in place to make sure that the funds are, of the church are stewarded well. These are, we have a deacon of children's ministry to make sure our children are served well, and that's actually a diaconate team. Like, these are all critically important roles within the church to carry out practical ministry in the church. Phoebe is a deacon. We also know she's a leader in the church in Centria, again, a port city near Corinth. She, like I mentioned already, she's a woman of means. She financially supported many as a patron, including Paul himself, and that's really important if you go read the letters to the Corinthian church, because Paul was one of the few places where, where the Corinth was one of the few places where Paul refused to take money from the church. He said, I didn't, I didn't take anything from you in 1 Corinthians 9, even though he was owed it as rightly as someone who's giving them spiritual benefit, the material blessing is nothing when you're getting spiritual benefit. He said, but I didn't when I was among you because I didn't want anything to be a barrier to the gospel. And so instead, he pulled his support from other places while he was in Corinth, and Phoebe is one of his patrons as he relied on supporters. And here, she is commended by Paul. Most believe that this means that Phoebe was the one that Paul trusted to carry this letter to the church in Rome. That she was there, whether she was there headed on some other purpose or business, we can't know. But Paul trusted her to be the carrier and deliverer of this important letter. So Phoebe was an important leader in the early church. We also see Priscilla and Aquila that comes next. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So Prisca is a shortened name of Priscilla and, and her husband Aquila. And it's interesting here, fascinating here, that, that Priscilla is listed first. That was way outside of cultural norm at the time. Why is she listed first? Well, that probably shows us that she was the one that was particularly more gifted in teaching and had the opportunity to do so. We see in Acts 18 that Priscilla instructed in Apollos. Apollos was a young upstart preacher that was eloquent and people talked about his incredible speaking gifts, but he was theologically off on some things. And so in Acts 18, we read that Priscilla and Aquila sat him down. They led a house church together, and we, they risked their necks for Paul's life. And again, here, there's no gaps filled in. There's lots of speculation, but many believe they were probably part of protecting Paul during the riots in Ephesus that we read about in Acts 19. And so they were trusted co-laborers who were prominent teachers in the early church alongside the Apostle Paul. Then in, in verse 7, we read, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they, are, they were in Christ before me. Now, this one causes a lot of debate. There's some uncertainty about whether it's junia or junias. The junia would be feminine, junias, masculine, but it's almost certainly feminine, and up until the 1200s, it was universally received as feminine. And so this is likely a Jewish couple. What do we learn here? That they were believers before Paul. That means they probably knew each other. They probably knew Paul before any of them had converted to Christ. Um, which would create some really interesting backstory, right? If they, were, if they had come to Christ first and knew Paul, and Paul was the one trying to destroy the church, and then all of a sudden he shows up, and they're like, what, you, you're into this now? 
Like, can you imagine that? He calls them kinsmen again. There's some that are like, it's, it's fun to at least think about. What if they were actually cousins? And can you imagine that Thanksgiving table? Like, <laughs> that, that Passover meal? It, like, that, it, it would have gotten awkward. But at least they likely knew each other, and they had spent time in prison together. The debate comes in because it says they were well known to the apostles. The New American Standard here translates it, they were outstanding among the apostles. And so there's people that try to build an entire theology here that Junia was an apostle and therefore it has implications for other roles for men and women. I don't think that's helpful or true in this case. Um, Building an entire case for gender roles on an obscure, debated verse is unwise. But what we see here is that these were prominent people in the early church. Andronicus and Junia. Junia is a prominent person in the early church, men and women together. Now, apostle, there's two ways that apostle is used in the New Testament. One is what we think of with big A, apostle. There were, there were 12 apostles plus Paul, so 13, who were trained and discipled by the resurrected Jesus and commissioned with authority to lead the church and establish its doctrine. That was limited to 12 plus Paul. No one else qualifies for that title. But again, the, word, the Greek word here, apostolos, is used all over the place for other things. And so there are other instances where Barnabas was called apostolos. It means a sent one. And so it doesn't mean that he had the same authority as James and, P- and Peter and John, but it means that, that they, were, they were sent out by churches. And so you can think about that almost like we use the word missionary or evangelist. And so... Junia was named as an outstanding leader in the early church. Men and women are important, and God calls all of us together, and we all have a part to play. Even beyond this section in Romans, we see the importance of women throughout Scripture, that Tabitha was a leader of mercy ministry to the poor in Acts 9, and Euodia and Syntyche in, in Philippians 4 labored side by side with Paul in his gospel work, and women spoke and prayed in public worship in 1 Corinthians 11, and in the Old Testament as well, women Women were prophets and prophesied. And so at Redemption Hill, this is part of what we've worked to do in, in saying there's importance of men and women working together, not that, they are in, that we are indistinct, but saying that we all have roles to play. And so we have elders and Titus II team and that work together for the good of the church. And we look for opportunities to see people lead in community groups and in opportunities to teach classes and seminars and, and, and then also our corporate gathering in the church. So, God calls all kinds of people together. Third observation, we all have something meaningful to contribute. We all have something to contribute. And so the church is family. We're not in this alone. God calls all of us together, all kinds of people, and and the church is diverse. And then we all have something to contribute. The greatest work of the church that Paul holds up is done in obscurity. And that's important for us to see here. People working hard, but not for personal recognition or platform. Chuck Swindoll noticed this. He said, The body of Christ is held together by those who serve in obscurity. Phoebe was a unifying force in the church near Corinth, and someone the Lord called upon to carry this monumentally important letter to Rome. Yet we know nothing more about her. Mary, Urbanus, Trifina, Trifosa, twins maybe, and Persis were noted for their faithful labors. Nothing is no, more is known of them, neither from Scripture nor any reliable historical documents. Priscilla and Aquila served with Paul in Corinth, stabilized the church in Ephesus, and undoubtedly did the same in Rome. And yet again, we know nothing of them beyond these brief acknowledgments in Scripture. The 27 names listed represent countless others 
who quietly and profoundly enrich the body of Christ. You know what that means? That means you have a part to play. You have a role that's essential within our church family. The church is not just an event. It's easy to approach it that way because then you can sit back passively and be a critic, which is way easier than actually trying to do anything. The church is not just an academy. I mean, yeah, we want to we learn and think well and, and learn to think better about who God is and have the way that God shapes. I mean, again, we have, have our minds transformed by the good news of the gospel. But we also need to remember that knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And so the church isn't just about the things that we're learning. I mean, this is like, we just had Thanksgiving, right? And even distance Thanksgiving, I'm guessing we're not the only ones that kind of overdid it on food and drink this past week. But you feel that by a couple days in, right? Like we did, we did the meal, and then we did leftovers, and then yesterday I was like, well, we still, I'm making soup. And like, we're, we're starting to wind down on things. But, but you get to a point, like if we ate like this every week, we would be very differently shaped. Because you take in that much, and you've got to have some output. You t- that's, this is basic, right? Like, like, you take in that many calories, and their calories are stored energy, and so if you don't release them into energy, they will keep storing themselves for you. We know that physically, and the same thing is true spiritually, that if all we ever do is take in knowledge, and all we want is another sermon, another podcast, another Bible study, more content, more content, more content, and you're never exercising your faith into your life, then, then you're going to become a lethargic Christian with a dull heart. And so the church can't just be an academy. The church is not just activists. Yes, we are engaged for the welfare of our city and we want to seek justice and peace in our city, but never apart from the gospel, and the gospel will confront the idols of our city at every turn. And so being able to do good work, but as an overflow of the gospel, not as a replacement for it. The church isn't just a social club. My gosh, we feel that right now, right? But even still, even if, though we can't see and be seen on a Sunday together, we still can turn to church for, uh, to meet our need of community without ever actually sacrificing what it takes to achieve the community we want to see. Does that make sense? Let me break that down for a second. We, we may never be, have been at a point culturally, and certainly we feel this in our city, where people realize their need for community more. And so that's one of the things we hear, and praise God for that, that they, people come to Redemption Hill and they're like, I was brought in by the warmth of the community and I was connected so quickly and the community here is incredible. Great, yes and amen, and I'm glad for that. But if we make community the ultimate goal, then the church will never meet the ideals that we have for what a community will be. You'll find yourself bitter that people aren't being a good enough friend in the way that you think they ought to be friends and they're not caring about you enough. And one of the things that I always wonder is when, when people talk about that way and I just wasn't cared for enough is when the last time is that you reached out to serve another person within the church. The only way for us to see the community of the church become the community we want it to be is for us each individually to invest ourselves to that end. It's not to sit back and always be looking to receive. And so we need to be careful there because we can take the good gifts of God and idolize those as well. The reality is we're a bunch of misfits showing other blind beggars where to find bread. The church is also not just an obligation. 
And when you approach it that way so that you're coming on Sunday or tuning in on a Sunday or going to your community group or jumping on the Zoom call, which, listen, I know that some of you are feeling Zoom fatigue, but right now there may have never been a lower bar to actually join your community group than this season. Like, you don't have to leave your home. You don't even have to cook anything or stop by Trader Joe's for a bag of chips on the way. Like, all you do is turn on Zoom, and so join your community group. Be together. It's important. But when we look at things as an obligation so that church is just something we go to rather than a family we are a part of, so our community group is an event that we go to rather than a family meal with people that we love, then it makes it so that, that we will begin to feel that obligation and despise it. Instead, we need to understand that Sundays are a family reunion where we get to come together at the table of the king, worshiping the Lord of Lords together, and, and that this is an opportunity for our hearts to be restored. See, the church is a family, and we all have a role to play. You remember this growing up. My kids feel this right now, that when you get forced to do stuff around the house, and as a kid, you hate it. Like, there is nothing worse than being told to actually do something. <laughs> and, and so we, like, we, you, you have chores, though, right? And for us, we've even tried to simplify it where we have a rotation. So we're like, I know you hate doing dishes. Next month, you get to take out trash. <laughs> like this is, we rotate month to month, and so our kids know this is what you're doing this month. But why? Because everybody's got a part to play. There's five of us making a mess in this place, and, we, we, and right now we're all stuck in it together. And so we've gotta, you've got to carry some of the load. I am not picking up your sweatshirt again. Like, pick it up. You have a part to play. The church is a family, and we've all got something to do. We've all got roles to play, and it's not always stuff that we want to do. Like, that's another thing. Yes, we want to see you flourish and do the things you're most passionate about and, and see your giftedness build up the body, and then there's times when you also just need to serve because you're part of the family. None of us likes to take the trash out. That's not a fun job. None of us likes to do the dishes. That's not, it's not a fun job. I've had people in the past that have told me, like, I can't serve on Sundays. Now, right now, I get it. If you're like, I am, I'm either compromised and immunocompromised, and so I cannot be physically present on Sundays, or there's other reasons that you're choosing that you that valid that you you aren't going to be like this is not that's not what I mean. I mean, if we if we when we get to the other side of this thing, which will come, and but I've had people that have said I just don't ever serve on Sundays out of principle, and I press in. Well, why why is that? And they say because Sundays are my Sabbath. What about the rest of, rest of us? Sundays are my Sabbath too. But the idea of Sabbath in the old covenant was to set aside a day where your focus wasn't on yourself or on the things that you normally need to do and your usual work in order to fix your focus on God alone. Now, for me, because Sundays are a full, fuller work day, that means that there are other days in the week that I need to find rest in other ways, but, but there is no day that I fix my eyes on God more than when I'm with you. As somebody who works and labors on your behalf in the pulpit, and as we come together, part of what we set aside the Lord's day to do is to come together and facilitate the family gathering together. And so just to try to use language of Sabbath to say to justify selfishness doesn't work out. It's, it's, it's a different rhythm than what we normally do, and praise God for that opportunity. 
And so, again, I, this isn't, uh, please hear this, especially for those that, that can't join us in person right now, this isn't a rebuke for that at all. But it's saying that in normal circumstances, when you're able to be physically present, there's a role that we have to play. Let's jump in together. Because the, the things that we imagine, when you have an ideal of what you would like Redemption Hill to be and the impact you would like Redemption Hill to have and the, the things that you would like to see our church be more effective in, the only way we're going to get there is if we are all doing that together. And so when you imagine what are the things we could do more effectively, join us. Do that thing. We're happy to help you and equip you for it and, and to help you to, to channel that passion into, into something that will build up the body of Christ. But we all have something to contribute because we're a family. All right, fourth and finally, we are bound together with a holy affection. You see how Paul ends this? Again, there's never been a more anti-COVID time verse written than this one. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I know some of you are immediately repulsed by that idea. Like if we said, like, hey, when you come to Redemption Hill, you will expect to be kissed. You'd say, I will never come again. Others of you are like, cool. Let's... <laughs> This, this, again, we come from different family backgrounds and cultural backgrounds, and how affection is showed is different. Alyssa and I come from very different families this way, and I think for her it was a little shocking at first when she came to family gatherings, and she's like trying to keep lists of cousins and aunts and uncles straight and who's connected to who and why we have cousins in Madison and in Chicago and in Florida and in other places around the country, and, and when you come in, everybody gets a hug and a kiss on the mouth. Like that's, that's a little bit, if that's not your family background, it's a little bit a little bit shocking. If you grow up in that, then when you get to a family background that's a little bit more conservative physically and with their affection, sometimes a nice hearty handshake is about all you can hope for, all you can expect, or a sincere wave, or a quick passing hug. And so I know right now we can't do any of that. Right now that's the awkwardness, right, when we're saying, all right, take a minute to wave to the people around you in the church <laughs> during COVID. But this, this is why we still have a greeting time. Because we are called by God to be openly affectionate with each other as family. And I know that's going to be different. And right now, the way we do that is different. And especially as, as people are scattered and joining us from scattered places, that's one of the reasons that Jess encourages, like, text people in your community group. Let people know you're thinking about them and extend legitimate warmth and affection to each other. Because none of us have come in here any given week or joined online and any given week, we don't come together as a church and think, you know what, I am just smothered by too much affection this week. Most of us feel isolation, we feel discouragement, and, and to, for somebody to show us that they love us and care about us can lift our hearts and it communicates something of the beauty of God's love for us as well. And so, man, I can't wait to give people big hugs again as a church, to be able to put our arms around each other and pray for each other and, and to be able to, to be in closer proximity physically. But we're bound together by a holy affection. And so trying to find ways even now to be able to express that to each other is really important. It's part of our call as Christians. And so we've got to understand this, again, that, that American popular Christianity tends to be individualistic. It's about my relationship with God and consumeristic and what do I get out of it and disembodied that Jesus is the Lord of my spirituality only. And biblical Christianity is communal. We come and say our Father, not just my Father. 
It's sacrificial. It's not consumeristic of what do I get out of this. It's what can I give to be able to see the mission of Christ advanced. And, and it's embodied that Jesus is the Lord over all of our lives. And so this Thanksgiving weekend, Redemption Hill, I am, I am thankful for you. And I was hit emotionally. I, I was in the office working on, on just getting some things ready for today, yesterday. And as I was reading this, I was really struck by the fact that Paul is writing this. He was in Corinth at the time that he wrote it. And many of the people that he lists here, he wasn't with physically. And I miss our church terribly right now. Some of you are able to come physically or have chosen to, and it's good to see you here, but even then it's weird because we have things hit the screen immediately as the service ends that says, leave now. <laughs> and so we miss something of the life of the church family. Many of you aren't able to come or have chosen not to come physically, and that is fine, but it is strange as your pastor to know that every week you're interacting with me, but I don't get to see you, and I miss you. I miss seeing your face and giving you a big hug in the name of Jesus to the glory of God. And Paul was apart from so many people he listed here, and, and so I, I can feel that in a different way now and, and relate to him in that more than any other time I can think of in ministry. That even though so many of our church are here and in our city, we still can't be together. And so today's passage is, is sweet. There's a sweetness to it that, that some of the challenges we face aren't new and that in the dark valley of COVID, that even while we're kept apart, we're knit together by the Spirit of God and that we continue to be a family on mission together. That this is our calling, that we're not in this alone and we have the encouragement as we have the hope of the first Sunday of Advent. And remember, biblically, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a settled certainty that God's promises are true and that he is present with us. So we're not in this alone. God calls all kinds of people together, and there's a part for you to play in what, we, what God is doing in our midst, and we are bound together with a holy affection. And so let's just com let's commit as a church and as individuals to, to live self-sacrificially for others in these, into these callings, knowing that if we do that, the whole church family and community will be shaped into what we long for it to be. So with that, let's pray. Um, Father, we are thankful today for your love for us, your care for us. We are thankful that, you have, that we are not in this alone. We don't have to do this alone, but that you have put us into a church family. We pray today that you would help us to, to break outside of our own heads and in the midst of and in spite of our own sense of isolation, that you would give us a heart to to reach out to others, to check in on others, to extend our affection and our care to others who are part of this church family. We pray that those who are discouraged and feel alone would, would reach out to people around them so that others could, could minister to them and, and let them know that they're not alone, that they're seen and known and loved ultimately by our Father, but also by brothers and sisters who are with them. So would you help us to see the role that we have to play to, be, to commit ourselves to build up the body of Christ. And today, Father, we thank you for what you've given us in the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.